Hey, it's Martine. We want to thank you, our Post Reports listeners, by offering you a special 50% discount on a digital subscription to The Washington Post. Enjoy unlimited access to our website and apps for less than a dollar a week. Sign up at postreports.com slash offer. Thanks for listening. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, March 20th. Today, the widespread gender discrimination among economists, Democrats struggling to reach minority voters, and an athletic tradition threatened by climate change. When I was an assistant professor, I became pregnant with my first child. Adriana Kugler is a public policy professor at Georgetown University. At the time of my pregnancy, and also after he was born, I kept hearing and getting unsolicited advice from male colleagues telling me that basically my career was over. That my career was over because now that I had my child, I was not going to be able to travel to conferences. I was just not going to be able to work as hard. And that basically I was done. That this was it. Except she wasn't done. She went on to get a PhD in economics. Now her son is 17. And she says that not a whole lot has changed since then. For a long time, there have been very few female economists and non-white economists. This is a profession that's been dominated by white men. Heather Long is an economics reporter for The Post. She says that the field that she covers is going through a Me Too movement. About a year and a half ago, a couple of young female economists began to come out with some research that showed widespread discrimination. In particular, there was a paper that looked at comments on a very popular job board that's used to hire economists to be professors at universities. And all the top 10 descriptors for any male job seeker were things about their research. Are they competent? Are they good mathy or good speaker? And all things the, that are actually relevant to yeah, their career. And all the comments about women, and at least the top terms, were all about their appearance. Are they hot? Are they pregnant? Sometimes even worse comments. And I think that really made it difficult for people to sit there and say, gee, <laughs> economics maybe isn't so welcoming and, and has some real issues. And so more recently, there has been a survey that puts even more numbers on this issue. The American Economic Association, which is like the umbrella group, decided to do this survey, and they got about a 20% response rate. So, you know, a pretty decent number of people decided to fill this out. And the results are really, um, to use the words from a lot of the economists who've looked at it, disturbing, mm -hmm. horrific, uh, some people are saying. To give a couple of key stats, 30% of female economists who responded to the survey say they've been discriminated against. 42% say somebody has basically made some sort of sexual pass at them, you know, sort of attempted. And you're looking at, in most questions, 
about half of women have experienced a lot of these things that are pretty eyebrow raising and, and you would just not a climate that anybody would want to be working in. It's another piece of evidence that's popping up here that makes it hard for people to say, oh, we don't have a problem in economics. You know, hearing that, part of me is really shocked by the scope of that problem and the number of women who are reporting these things. And then part of me isn't really that surprised at all because it's like, it seems like these things happen in every career, in every professional world. But seeing it in the world of economics is even more surprising because this is supposed to be like a world full of people who are numbers driven and would be able to know better. You're exactly right. And that's why... It's probably taken so long for economics to have this day of reckoning because so many economists just said, we don't we don't really have a problem. We don't, we're a meritocracy. I will say that the heads of the American Economic Association are some of the biggest names in economics. The current president is Ben Bernanke, who used to be at the Federal Reserve and White House Council of Economic Advisors. The vice president, if you will, who will be the president in 2020 is Janet Yellen, who's arguably the most famous female economist in the world. She was also a former Fed chair, also a former chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. And both of them are committed to trying to address these problems. Janet Yellen calls it a climate problem. She thinks, look, it's particularly bad. We absolutely have to shut down right away people getting these sexual passes made at them. And that needs to stop ASAP. Well, it's also interesting because you say that these leaders from the economic community have been talking openly about the need to address this. But you've also reported that at the conference for the American Economic Association, that's where a lot of these incidents happen. A lot of it is these soft incidences. So I was there this year in early January at this big conference that they have where over 10,000 economists gather in one city and they nerd out, if you will. It really is the highlight of the year for most professional economists. And, you know, sitting there as they were having all these discussions about how to empower women and how to get more females and minorities into the field, these very odd things were happening to me. I was sitting between two economists at, at one event, and one of them turned to me and started making you know, direct comments to me about my appearance, sort of questioning, you know, what, what my origin was, and then dissecting my f- various features on my face and whether or not they looked more Scandinavian or, or Irish. At several other panels I attended, women were among the researchers who had done the research that was supposed to be presented, and yet they ended up sitting in the audience while their male colleagues presented for them. And there could be a number of reasons that happens, but again, we were— But but it's a bad look to have research presented by men that was done by women. Or that they collaborated on. And it's in one case in particular, they, they told the woman was sitting in the audience and the moderator said something. It was an all-male panel and said something to the effect of, well, you know, she'll speak later. And then, of course, things ran out of time and she never actually got to speak or answer any questions. And then you've written about some ways in which the hiring process is also kind of fraught with problems when it comes to gender equality and discrimination, including like how people are interviewed at these conferences. 
For anyone outside of economics, it's this jaw-dropping moment when you hear that the way that economists are hired for most universities, including some of the most famous ones that we all know of, is you get invited to a hotel room and a bunch of professors, usually senior professors who tend to be white males, are standing around or sitting around this room. So there's been situations where People are walking in, so if they're a young female, say, economist, and they're walking into this room or this hotel bedroom to do a professional job interview with five guys maybe standing around. And in some cases, I haven't heard as much in the recent years, women were actually sitting on the bed. I mean, asked, like, instead of getting a chair, they were actually asked to sit on the bed. So a number of people have flagged this as a concern over the years. It's gotten a little better in the sense I think many departments try to reserve suites or try to at least move the furniture, move the bed a little bit. But it's still really harrowing. And I have to say, I give credit to a lot of younger economists, both male and female, have come together. Several hundred young economists wrote a letter to the American Economic Association at the end of last year saying this isn't right, not just the interviews in the bedrooms, but the, they pointed out a number of issues in the field that they say we're not going to stand for this. And all of these issues, they've led to that radical underrepresentation of women in the field of economics. And what strikes me is that you see that underrepresentation become apparent when it comes to the research that's done and the ways that economists interpret that research. You're spot on. It's very similar to medicine and how for years people didn't study pregnancies very much or didn't study women's health issues or mental health issues in women. I mean, the same thing could be said of economics and the types of studies that have been done over the years. So actually, it was Janet Yellen who said to me the other day that one of the main reasons that she wants to see basically 50-50 gender parity in economics in her lifetime, so going from 30% PhDs women to 50 is for that reason. Because she thinks it makes the profession stronger. It makes the research more interesting and more diverse. And it makes, uh, it makes the conclusions and the interpretations better as well and sharper. Heather Long covers economics for The Post. Last week, Senator Bernie Sanders traveled to South Carolina for a rally. Thank you, Charleston! I'm Cleve Woodson Jr. I'm a national political reporter for The Washington Post. Cleve went with Sanders to cover the event. We were in North Charleston, South Carolina. It is a community where 47% of the people are Black. We're at a Black church that's been there for a century. But the interesting thing was there were some 1,600 people there. And I, I did a, an impromptu headcount, and I think I counted 37 Black people there, not including myself. In a, in a community that is half Black. In a neighborhood that is almost all Black, right? North Charleston is 47% Black, but this is a Black church in a Black part of, you know, an almost majority Black city. And what do you think that says? 
Well, I'm always hesitant to make prognostications about what this will say for Sanders, you know, a year from now in the primary. But one thing it says for sure is that he has a challenge ahead, that for some reason or for whatever reason, the message that he's putting out there is not automatically registering with Black people, with Black voters. And if he doesn't kind of right the ship, or if he doesn't find a way to resonate, it's going to be really, really hard for him in South Carolina. Why do you think that his message isn't resonating with Black voters? You know, the Black voters that I talk to and the other people who kind of study voting behavior and all of that stuff, sometimes they say that it's maybe not the message, but it is the delivery. I talked to one person who was like, Bernie Sanders is an older white man from the North, and his style at these campaign rallies is a behind-the-lectern kind of talking-at-people style, where he just espouses policy after policy after policy. And that, you know, people have told me, may not resonate as well with Black people, with poor people, even with people for the South who want more retail politics. And I think it's interesting to compare this to the 2016 campaign where Bernie Sanders also got a lot of criticism for the way that he addressed or didn't address race, right? That his message was all about class and social mobility and the wealth gap, but that he sometimes seemed to shy away from pointing out the ways in which that particularly was a problem for people of color. Well, and I don't think he's the only candidate or the only person who said, you know, that these socioeconomic issues that we face in this country can also be, you know, kind of inextricably linked with racial issues, right? He he says that over and over and over again. I think the question for a lot of the Black people that I spoke to is, you know, A, is there a feeling that, you know, Sanders is the best one to kind of get this message across to the rest of the country? But it, You know, he's also one candidate among more than a dozen candidates who are vying for their vote. And so I think a lot of people have said, you know, I'm also kind of waiting to see whether or not he emerges as the best person to kind of say this message. How have you seen this play out for other candidates in the first few weeks of their campaigns? Um, Kamala Harris is kind of an interesting counterpoint because she actually went to the same church, the same gymnasium. Hers also was a standing room only crowd with similar numbers. But her crowd was just, it was just more black people. I wasn't at that event. I've only seen the pictures of that event and talked to people who were there. But I mean, there were, you know, older black women in church lady hats there. There were just more. Now, you know, Kamala Harris is black and she's an AKA, which is a black sorority. And so she's seeing, you know, seeing more black people in in part, I think, because of that. But when Cory Booker came through South Carolina, he was also black, a senator from New Jersey. You know, he saw an overwhelmingly black crowd in Greenville, whereas Elizabeth Warren, who also spoke in Greenville at a black church, saw a very small group of group of black people. Elizabeth Warren, I think, is is an interesting example as well, because so much of her campaign has been focused on policy, but that I've noticed different instances recently in which she has been specific about how race plays into those policies and what she hopes to enact as president. Can you talk a little bit more about that? A couple interesting things about Elizabeth Warren is that I think Elizabeth Warren, a lot of the things that people say about Bernie Sanders and his difficulty appealing to Black people, particularly Black Southerners, 
people say about Elizabeth Warren. Their differing approach to um, kind of ameliorating that and fixing that was on display this weekend. I mean, Elizabeth Warren basically went in search of black people. She went to the Delta. She went to Mississippi. She toured, you know, instead of going to Iowa and New Hampshire and the, or even South Carolina, she went to certain areas and talked to black leaders. I think she ate at like a soul food restaurant. And so whereas you have Bernie Sanders, who at least at this point is kind of doing essentially the same style of going, having big rallies, and whoever comes, here's the message that he gets. You have Elizabeth Warren with like a homing beacon, you know, going out to find voters, hear what they have to say, but also to send a message to kind of the wider world or the wider electorate that she understands that she needs to make inclusion kind of a message and that that image needs to be seen by people who would consider her. So how do you think that this is going to play out in the coming months with such a big and diverse field of Democratic candidates? Prognosticating is always going to be hard because a lot of the candidates, you know, the things we see, they probably also see and they probably also recognize. And so they have a chance to write the ship. will be interesting will we'll be a couple things. One, to see how they react. You know, if Sanders knows, look, I'm having trouble attracting black people with my current style and way of speaking, whether or not that changes in the days or weeks or months to come, whether he changes, whether it be his speaking style or whether he does more town halls or whether he does like Warren does and and goes to areas where more black people are. But there's a, a couple things, a couple lessons here for everybody in the race. One, 60% of the Democratic primary electorate in South Carolina is composed of African-Americans. And a lot of the people in South Carolina that I spoke to say that they feel this is the first primary that really looks like what America Mm-hmm. looks like. You know, Iowa and New Hampshire, you know, just have a, a lot more white people than the United States has. And so a lot of candidates are looking to South Carolina to prove how they will do on a larger scale, a larger scope. Another thing, maybe a lesson that I'm learning from just regular voters and other political leaders in South Carolina is that it's kind of hard to come in this late in the game and convince people that you're 100% for black people or for their cause or for what they're trying to do there. People, voters have an open mind about who these candidates are and what they offer, but they're also looking, you know, for evidence. What have you done for black people or where have you been in the past? Not just how you feel about these stances when somebody yells a question at a a town hall, but, you know, in your elected career, you know, have you, you know, basically been on our side? Cleve Woodson is a national political reporter for The Post. now, one more thing. Another winter is officially over, and that means that another year has gone by without the Elfstedentacht, which is Dutch for the 11-city tour. It's an ice skating race that's been going on for more than a century in the northern part of the Netherlands. 
except it hasn't happened in more than 20 years. And because of climate change, it's not clear whether the race will ever take place again. I'm in a city called Leowarden and approaching a canal right now. Let's give it a look and see. Sports reporter Rick Mays traveled to the Netherlands to see where the race would have happened. So the water is ice cold, but it is clearly not frozen. It's uh, much, much better suited right now for a swimming competition than an ice skating race. Klaus Antheadema heads to the skating rink six days a week, where he trains for a race that may never come. The last couple of years I'm training a lot. When it's coming, I, I'm, I'm ready. He's talking about the Alstedentop, one of the Netherlands' most storied and near-mythical sporting events. It's an ice skating race through the frozen canals of 11 different cities, more than 130 miles total. The Alstedentop is more than a race. It's woven into the cultural fabric, a time-honored part of the daily life in the Friesland province of the Netherlands. And for Adima, it's a family tradition. So when you were 14, did you know, like, were you watching your dad knowing that someday you wanted to do the same thing? Yeah, 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 for sure, yeah, yeah. Well, my grandpa did it uh, a few times. He did it together with my father, and then I wanted to do it together with my father as well, but it would be one of my dreams to do it. Adima, 36, has never raced in the Alstedentok. Most people under 30 have no first-hand memories of the event. That's because it only takes place when conditions allow. When extreme winters bowl over the region, the temperatures drop, and the canals freeze and turn to ice. Ice skating is so big here, when it gets below zero, you have lots of water, and uh, yeah, then everybody gets crazy. Everybody wants to skate. The last Alstedentok talk was in 1997. This year marks the longest drought ever between races. Climate change has endangered the event's prospects. In our climate, you need quite an unusual weather to actually get the Alstedentok type of weather. According to Peter Kuypers Munica, a polar meteorologist at Utrecht University, the average annual temperature in the Netherlands has risen by about three and a half degrees in the past century. We've had this type of weather ten times or so in the last hundred years. Once every ten years we have the right conditions for the water to freeze over to such an extent that you can hold this queen of uh, ice skating tours. The entire event is a minor miracle to pull off. And it's Weevil Willing's job to plan for it every year. What's your guess? Why, why do you think people care so much about skating up here? Well, because we did it from the Middle Ages. I mean, we've always been skating here. There's, and there's, <laughs> there's plenty of water over here. The organization plans year-round, spending nearly $400,000 annually on preparations. Membership dues fund the race, even though it hasn't actually happened in 21 years. This is the Canal Lake area, the province of, of Holland. And I think in the old days, uh, skating was the only way uh, in winter to go from one place to the other. And we had winters that started in November and finished in, in March or something like that. I mean, it's different now. Once the ice safely measures just under six inches along the entire route, skaters are formally put on notice. And 48 hours later, an Elfsteden talk is held. If you have 26,000 people on the ice, if you have 2 million visitors, if you have 3,000 journalists, you can't say, well, what shall we do? (laughs) (laughs) Wieling estimates that one-third of the entrants won't even finish. About 100 will be hospitalized, and one or two will likely die. Everything has to be organized as if 
it is really going to happen two days later. Yeah. So that's the irony of the whole thing. There's a bridge just outside of Leowarden that serves as a monument, tiled with individual pictures of most every man and woman who's ever completed the 11 city tour. That's the end. Yes. It's uh, just a few kilometers from here. Yeah. 79-year-old Bert Reinders was there with his daughter Tina. He wanted to show her the tile featuring him competing in the 1997 race. What was it like passing through the towns and seeing all the people? Oh, yeah. Ah, that's you. Yeah. yeah. Kind of kept you going? Yeah. It took me uh, 13 hours. For now, the race is a cultural tribute, an homage to ancestors, a region, and a culture. A tribute to a way of life that no longer exists. Not really, anyways. One side of the bridge has the words, it still have, Frisian for, it will happen. Rick Mays is a sports reporter for The Post. That's it for today's episode. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join in on the conversation on Twitter with the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 